And I don't want to short sell the theater side of the equation within the synergy concept because the movies, it's actually pretty complimentary. When there's not a big movie, a lot of people are going to go bowling and they're going to go do the other stuff that we offer. Like I said, escape rooms, axe throwing, whatever it may be. But on the big movie weekends, it's still all about Top Gun or Lightyear. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively focused on covering the world of theatrical exhibition. Big news in our sector of the industry this week as we were seeing reports from other press outlets that Cineworld, the parent company of Regal, the second largest exhibition circuit in North America, one of the largest exhibition circuits in the world, is reportedly considering filing for bankruptcy. Now, we haven't had anything confirmed as of press time, as of this recording, so we won't be going into too much of speculation on what may happen there. If anything does evolve, you can find our reporting at Box Office Pro. And we will tackle that at a later episode of this podcast. But considering that there are so many questions surrounding this news around Cineworld, around Regal, we thought it would be fitting to dedicate this episode to looking at some of the Q2 reports elsewhere in the industry, how other players in exhibition are faring right now, and understanding what the landscape means as we look ahead into a very problematic Q3 when it comes to new releases. We've got Rebecca Pauly, a colleague here at Box Office Pro. She's going to be helping us tackle this topic alongside making his Box Office podcast debut, Chad Kennerk, a staff writer here at Box Office Pro. Later on, on the speculative side of this podcast, we will be looking over what this weekend at the box office may mean with our box office analyst, Jesse Rifkin. And in the feature interview part of this episode, a special CineShow interview here, we've got the recipients of the CineShow Visionary Award, Jeff and Jamie Benson, co-founders of Synergy Entertainment, pioneers here in U.S. exhibition. But let's get this started. Rebecca, Chad, welcome. And Chad, especially for you, a double welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Chad, you know, this is your first time on the Box Office Podcast. So on behalf of Daniel, I'm going to vet you by what asking what you think of the Rocky movies. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so a confession. I haven't seen them all. Um, uh, Chad, I... thank you for your first and final appearance on the Box Office <laughs> Podcast. I've only seen the first one, but, too. I, I, I saw Creed. I did, too. And, and Daniel, you may appreciate, I have stood on the Rocky Steps in Philly and been by the statue. So I've at least made that trip. Chad, let's start with AMC, the biggest exhibition circuit here in North America and also in the world. But let's look at the North American numbers for AMC. What were their financial results for that second quarter of 2022? AMC reported attendance resulting in revenue of $1.17 billion, which is two and a half times the $445 million revenue in Q2 of 2021. And that's almost 50% ahead of the revenue AMC recorded in the first quarter of this year. Another great sign. And looking down here at the uh, number three circuit in the country, Rebecca Cinemark also had fantastic numbers here in Q2 2022. Yeah, 
they were looking at 744.1 million in total revenue, which is the company's highest quarterly performance since the onset of the pandemic. Great news for Cinemark. That's really, really positive to hear that it's their uh, best quarterly performance since COVID-19 became a reality here. And what's the deal over in the Midwest with our friends at Marcus Theaters, the number four circuit in the U.S. and the number five circuit in North America? We are looking at consolidated revenues that have more than doubled compared to the same period over the last year, going from 92 million in the Q2 last year to 198 million this year. I mean, going looking through these these reports. I mean, Chad, let me know your thoughts on this. It was very much like Top Gun, Top Gun, Top Gun. Everyone was extremely <laughs> pleased about, about Top Gun, but also about other films that, you know, I felt like from what you were saying offline, there's a real need that is being expressed in these calls for diversity and more different types of films. I know that's definitely how Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC, is feeling. He was very transparent in that Q2 call with investors saying that he thinks hard times are ahead in the third quarter coming up right now. Unfortunately, we have to say the same thing for Cineworld, which is also preparing for a very steep decline in revenue this upcoming Q3, and it's already looking at strategic options to raise some money. Cineworld, the second largest circuit in the UK and parent company of Regal, the second largest circuit in the US as well. But I think one of the best statements about this issue that the industry is facing this quarter, Q3, It actually came from Greg Marcus, the CEO of the Marcus Corporation, which is the parent company of Marcus Theaters. Chad, you listened into this call. What did Greg have to say about this uh, upcoming quarter? Yeah, essentially the ultimate message they want Hollywood to hear is that they need a broad breadth of films, both large and small. Greg said, quote, we aren't going to survive on just dinner alone. We need to eat three square meals a day. And frankly, Hollywood needs that too. Fortunately though, if we look at what's going on on the studio side of things, we are seeing studios that were all in on streaming, that were all in on day and date earlier in the pandemic, actually retreat and take a slightly different approach. I'm talking about, of course, Warner Brothers, which is now under new management as Warner Brothers Discovery. The CEO, David Saslav, actually coming up with uh, one of the better quotes, I think, in regards to theatrical during this round of uh, earning calls. Saslav saying, quote, we will fully embrace theatrical as we believe it creates interest and demand, provides a great marketing tailwind, and generates word-of-mouth buzz as films transition to streaming and beyond. When you are in theaters, the value of the content and the overall viewing experience is elevated. Then when the same content comes to PVOD and then streaming, it is elevated again. As films move from one window to the next, Their overall value is elevated, elevated, elevated. We saw this clearly demonstrated with the Batman and Elvis. We have a different view on the wisdom of releasing direct to streaming films. And we have taken aggressive steps to course correct the previous strategy. That's a quote from David Saslav, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery. Do do we have a little I told you so jingle? Because that's the the sensation I'm getting. But it's so refreshing to hear that. It's so refreshing for a, from a head of a studio to go out and say, hey, listen, the last management, they made short-sighted decisions to get through the pandemic 
we're back to normal, we have the box office numbers to prove it, and we're changing our strategy and optimizing theatrical. Unfortunately, we have a big gap on the schedule here in Q3. We know companies are gonna struggle, but we already also have these great results from Q2 that we've been going over. A big part of that success actually came from premium large format and the way that was able to influence more people coming in and enjoying the big screen. And as we know, premium large format screenings were a big part of that success in Q2, and it's a big part of what we're looking forward to making a big impact at the box office with those Q4 titles. Rebecca, we actually had a circuit agnostic quote from Rich Gelfond, the CEO of IMAX during that company's Q2 earnings calls, going over what that premium large format box office share was for the Canadian company. To quote Richard Gelfond here, for the first time in IMAX history, we delivered three consecutive 25 million plus global openings. Those films being Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Top Gun Maverick, and Jurassic World Dominion. Some good numbers there from IMAX, though, of course, as we know, that's not the only premium amenity that chains are investing in and looking at now. It's interesting as we talk about how much of a market share these premium formats are are responsible for, for theaters. If we look at another Canadian company, Cineplex, uh, that country's top circuit, in Q2, box office per patron was up 10.4% over Q2 2019. So this is a pre-pandemic comparison, right? That box office per patron up 10% mainly due to the rise of premium large format for moviegoers. Movie theaters are really focusing on PLF auditoriums to drive up the ticket price, to drive up that opening weekend business. In fact, if you look at Cineplex's numbers here, 42% of Cineplex's total box office in Q2 was driven by premium formats. That's crazy, guys. Over 40% of the top movie theater circuit's grosses in Canada came through premium offerings. I think part of the reason for Cineplex's success with this is that they have such a variety of PLF experiences across its circuit. They have D-Box immersive seating, they've got IMAX, they've got their own AVX branded in-house PLF. Everyone is different. Now, we look at the numbers here across the board. Chad, I know that Cinemark is also over-indexing when it comes to their PLF share in box office compared to the respective amount of screen space they have across the circuit. Yeah, nearly 15% of Cinemark's second quarter box office was from PLF auditoriums, with those premium formats only representing 5% of Cinemark's screens. That's crazy. I mean, that's the new normal, to use that hated <laughs> phrase, new normal, that we all, that we all overuse. But... That is definitely an ongoing trend that we're seeing. I just wonder how the balance is going to shift between PLF and non-PLF once we, you know, knock on wood, hopefully get back to a more robust and diverse. Well, that 15% benchmark from Cinemark that Chad just brings up, I think is more or less the benchmark we're seeing from AMC as well, right? With AMC reporting that 15.6% of its domestic attendance in Q2 came from PLF. Now that's a rise from 10.9% of Q2 PLF attendance 
from 2019. So it's definitely on an upward trend, but it's not those crazy numbers like we're seeing over in Canada where it's just going gangbusters when we talk about these premium auditoriums. It is something we're gonna have to keep on uh, tracking, but like you mentioned, Rebecca, it's 100% dependent on the slate. It's not something that if you build it, they will come. You need to build it and hope there's enough content so audiences come. Now, when we talk about technology investment, we also have to talk about the other side of the coin, which is mobile apps, websites, all of that infrastructure so movie theaters can be closer to that e-commerce side of the business. And in this case, I really like what Marcus Theaters is doing, investing in its mobile app. They actually just added a feature to their F&B mobile ordering where they can upsell during a transaction. So have you guys ever gone through that? You go to the movie theater, you're gonna buy a soda for like seven bucks, and then they tell you, well, for 7.25, you can have the extra large. Have you guys ever paid that extra quarter? They get me every time. Every Have I ever not? <laughs> He's got a gallon of soda <laughs> for that 7.25 as opposed to getting the small. It's too good a deal. It's too so good a deal. So that sales technique is now something that is being integrated into mobile apps. Marcus Theaters is having a very good experience doing that with their technology. It's part, I think, of a rise in concessions and F&B sales this last quarter with people going back to theaters. Chad, from this perspective, what were some of Cinemark's results looking at what that per patron uh, revenue was at the concession stand? Yeah, so Cinemark shared that their domestic concession per person reached an all-time high of $6.90. Very similar over at AMC. Despite the supply chain issues, the per patron spending in the second quarter was $7.52, which is actually 55% higher than the average spending in pre-pandemic Q2 2019. And Chad, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it, it's also the highest single month per cap in concessions ever for AMC and they're over a century old. Yeah, they're looking at preliminary numbers for July food and beverage revenue, and it's looking to be the biggest single figure in their 102-year history. No, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about because you are having these supply chain issues. You are having inflation. I, I mean, so you wonder how many of these increasing concession per caps are just because cinemas are raising prices, so of course the per caps are going to be higher. I mean, we, we really don't have that kind of granular look at, at the data here to, you know, say either way. But I mean, as a, as a lifelong uh, fan of movie theater concessions, I can definitely say that I have been uh, indulging myself more when I go out to the movies. And going over what's coming up at the box office this weekend, Rebecca Polly is going to be coming back after a short break with our colleague Jesse Rifkin to go over this upcoming weekend at the box office. So, Jesse, before we get into uh, kind of a more forward-looking assessment of uh, what's coming at the box office, we do have to address briefly, you know, what was the number one film at the box office last weekend? Because is it even fair to say it's a surprise when an anime film does well in, in a situation where there's pretty much nothing else new coming out? What, what happened there? Well, there was another uh, new movie coming out, which was Universal Pictures Beast. But yeah, on, on the podcast episode last week, we said that it was going to be neck and neck between for first place between Beast and a new anime film from Sony Pictures and and Crunchyroll called Dragon Ball Super Superhero. Well, it was not close. Uh, Dragon Ball actually came in almost double with about 20.1 million, 
And Beast, the thriller, suspense thriller about a lion who attacks humans, uh, came in second place with somewhere around half of that, about 11.5 million. Beast, Beast really, really got beaten there uh, by, by an anime release, but we've, we've seen that in the past. Uh, films like Demon Slayer, Jujutsu no Kaizum, or Hero Academia, you know, every once in a while there is an anime film that busts out. Now, the question I have for you is, in the past, what sort of holds have happened when uh, an anime film breaks into the top five? Or, or guess I'm asking, what will the hold be for Dragon Ball Super Superhero, in your view? Yeah, these films tend to fall pretty steeply, pretty fast. They're very front-loaded. Let's take two of the ones you just mentioned. So you said A Demon Slayer and Jujutsu Kaisen. So those both opened about comparably to what the new Dragon Ball Super just did. So again, the stats are Dragon Ball Super just opened at 20.1 million. Demon Slayer Mugen Train last year opened to 22.7 million, so a little higher than that. And Jujutsu Kaisen opened uh, with 18.0 million, so a, a little below that, but all in about the same range. Demon Slayer dropped 71% in its sophomore frame, and Jujutsu Kaisen improbably fell even steeper than that, minus 75% in its sophomore frame. So expect something comparable. So, okay, if Dragon Ball Super Superhero holds with, uh, you know, holds with the precedent, drops, you know, 65 in the 70, high mid 70s next weekend, what are we looking at as the number one film? Dragon Ball is going to fall pretty far. Invitation and 3,000 Years of Longing are probably both going to open low. Perhaps even less than 15 million, dare I even say less than less than 10 million. We might be talking single-digit millions here. Because August is not looking it's it's basically the month of bullet train and assorted other other movies. <laughs> Our lead box office analyst Sean Robbins is currently projecting a seven to twelve million dollar opening weekend for the invitation. So at that point, that's probably the front runner for for number one. Really not a ton of big releases coming out until Halloween ends in the middle of October. Yet, we actually have a new film that is coming out in October that previously was not coming out in October. Something got moved forward, which I, for one, am, am very happy about. Uh, Jesse, what are your thoughts? This is the new David O. Russell movie, Amsterdam, which has been pushed forward to October 7th. Yeah, they just moved Amsterdam up a month from November 4th to October 7th, so putting a good film in there. Probably a good film. They're saying it's going to be one of the top awards contenders for, for Best Picture and maybe Best Actress for Margot Robbie, maybe Best Actor for Christian Bale. And it has some box office potential, too. Two of David O. Russell's last three films exceeded $100 million at the box office. So until uh, the release of Amsterdam on October 2nd, you know, we do have some horror films. We have uh, The Barbarian, and uh, which looks amazing to me. There's Pearl. There's the historical drama The Woman King with Viola Davis. We have some re-releases, uh, Jaws, No Way Home. Avatar is getting a re-release, so I'm finally going to see Avatar in 3D, which I didn't do when it, when it initially came out. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us, and we'll... See you back here again in, uh, in a few weeks. Thank you, Jesse. And now after this short break, we will have Daniel back on this episode of the podcast to speak with Jeff and Jane Benson, pioneers in the dining and now the Family Entertainment Center space with Synergy Entertainment Centers. And we're back here on the Box Office Podcast. Thank you for that segue, Rebecca. We're back here with Jeff and Jamie Benson from Synergy 
Entertainment. They are receiving the Visionary Award at this year's edition of CineShow in Dallas, Texas, going on this week. I'm there in person. This is a pre-recorded conversation that we taped ahead of the event. So without any further ado, let's hop right into it. Thanks, Rebecca and Jesse. And now let's hop right into this week's feature interview with Jeff and Jamie Benson. I'm going to take you back even further because it really starts in 1995. I was a, a CPA working for Deloitte and Touche, one of the big four accounting firms, and I was on an audit engagement. And it was an audit of a movie theater chain, Silver Cinemas. If you remember Silver Cinemas, Steve Holmes was CEO, and it happened to be a client of mine. The firm got got that job when when the audit came around and that couple of years of experience of being on their audit really put the bug in me to go out and you know try my hand at entrepreneurship and, and start my own theater chain and so in 1998 we actually built the precursor to movie tavern which was just a small six screen theater outside of fort worth in the town of granbury texas and it was just a traditional theater didn't have alcohol or, or food or anything but it, it Built, designed it and built it from the ground up, opened it uh, in 1999, uh, started construction in 1998. Then all of the major theater chains, including my former audit client, Silver Cinemas, filed bankruptcy. Uh, UA went down and General Cinemas and Lowe's and you know the big turmoil that, that stadium seating brought about, all the slope floor theaters that were previous generation and now being closed because of stadium seating were all being sloughed off and left with landlords. And that's what, re what really created the opportunity for Movie Tavern. And so we started in, I think we signed the first lease in June of 2001 and opened the first Movie Tavern in November of 2001. And it was a former General Cinema's location in Fort Worth. And that's when we realized that we might be on to something big with the, the dinner and a movie concept. And so we left we out in, in 98. We did get married. We did get married. Yes, we got married in 1998. I quit my job the day after I came back from my honeymoon. Uh, Jamie supported me for the next seven years. I left a few things out of the story. So, so Movie Tavern, we did the first one in Fort Worth in, in 2001. We did a second one in Arlington in 2002. Um, not that the first one was particularly successful. And so we kind of held off signing that lease. I mean, as you may recall, 2001, 2002, we had just been had our, had our, you know, the towers knocked down in New York and the movie business was in the, the crapper. Really nobody was going out. We had all been shell shocked. And so we didn't sign the lease on the second one until after, I believe it was May the 4th, 2002, when the first Spider-Man came out, and I believe that was the first one that broke $100 million at the domestic box office. And I said, okay, the movie business is back. Let's go ahead and sign that lease on the second movie tavern location. And I believe we got it. I think we signed the lease in June, right after right after it appeared that Tobey Maguire was a, had a mega hit on his hands. And we got it open, I believe, in we opened it July of 2002. Uh, then we did another traditional theater uh, outside of Austin, uh, down in the Hill Country in Marble Falls, Texas. And then we did a third movie tavern in Bedford in 2003. So we had five theaters total at that point, And that's when uh, we hooked up with Leroy Mitchell of Cinemark fame, of course, and partnered with him and formed Movie Tavern Partners. And we moved our offices back from Granbury, where we'd started the Dallas and, you know, with Leroy as our 50% partner, we decided we will, you know, 
obviously take on a partner with a lot of money and he injected capital, fresh capital into the business. And so, you know, we were off and on the grow to really expand the movie tavern concept. Uh, we added uh, 10 more theaters. I believe we had 13 uh, when we sold out to Leroy three years later in 2008. First Synergy was opened in June of 2009. Uh, in Copper's Cove, Texas, kind of down near Waco. And it's got a decent-sized game room, and it had a laser tag arena, but that was it, to go along with the eight screens. And then when we did the second one in Midland in 2013, actually, we built one in 2010 and sold the second location in 2014, so we don't operate that one anymore. And it was real similar to the first one, kind of a medium-sized game room and laser tag. Uh, But then when we did Midland, uh, in 2013, 2012, 2013, that's when we really started getting bigger into the games and Neil was having a bigger influence on us and really preaching the, the, the benefits of the family entertainment center business. Although we didn't really know at the time how it was going to truly mesh with the movie theater business. And they turned out to be very complimentary. So, so we opened Midland in 2013. Uh, it was a smashing success from the very first day. And literally that Next Monday morning after we opened on Friday, I started looking for a location in Odessa, which is 15 minutes away. And I said, if we are going to be this busy in Midland, then we need to do the same thing 15 minutes away in Odessa. And it took us about three years to get that location open. But we went from a 50,000 square foot store in Midland and we built a 90,000 square foot store in Odessa. And that one we added bowling doubled the size of the game room, you know, to well up over a hundred pieces, big laser tag arena, big ropes course with a zip line. That's really the it, one. It was the true Texas size. Yeah, it was truly <laughs> Texas size. And that one opened late uh, November, I think November 1st of 2016. But it was sort of a progression. You know, we started in 2009, built one in 2010. It was really similar to the first one. And then we went bigger in Midland and then we went in 2013 and then we went even bigger in Odessa in 2016. And it sort of grew and we kind of experimented and figured out parts and pieces. And then honestly, we didn't get the get the whole thing perfected until we did Amarillo. And we did Amarillo, another 90,000 square footer in 2018. And that's the one that won best epi or top FEC of the world from IAPA, the International Amusement IAPA, International Parks. Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions. <laughs> so that's that's where we really figure out it's all in the layout. I mean it's you know I mean, when you're when you're programming a giant game room and food and beverage, movie theaters, you know, 16 to 18 lanes of bowling escape rooms, axe throwing, virtual reality, the layout of the facility is very important. And that's the, you know, we, we spent, you know, from 2009 to 2018 kind of figuring out really what the right layout is, because I can assure you there is a huge difference in the performance of the game room between the first one and the later ones. I mean, when I say huge, I'm talking like 20 times difference in sales. It's all in the layout. If you don't have these buildings, like, I mean, to a large degree, you're, you're building a casino for families, you know, with games and all these different attractions. And so, you know, you, you want to put the big anchor attractions in the back and you want to have, you know, the, the impulse buys all those games and stuff toward the front people flow within these things is, is very important because you can have six, 7,000 people a day come through the doors on a busy Saturday. 
and they're they're all there to have fun and smile and spend their hard-earned dollar. He doesn't believe me when I say this, but I really didn't think that it would really happen. She didn't think I was serious. No. You know, even though I had written piles of business plans, floor to ceiling. Yeah, I mean, time went into this, but you know, I don't come from an entrepreneurial background, although Jeff doesn't either. I I didn't have anyone that I could look at and say, "Oh, yeah, you really can start your own business." We were just both two CPAs working for big firms. On the, you know, Jeff was a manager. I was. Actually, when we finally started, I had gone to work for a client. So, yeah, we're both managers. We're working hard. Uh, so I, I, I wasn't major... sure that, that it would really happen. And then, yeah, we came back from, we found out, well, before we caught our flight home from our honeymoon, back in the days where you had to call in and check your voicemail. Check your voicemail. Yeah. And found out that we had gotten the loan. And it, actually, they say that the the final decision on the board approval to give us the loan, it was because we'd both passed the CPA exam the first try. I could send you a picture of of Jamie serving popcorn and and soda with our, this would be in 2003 when our first son was born. He's strapped onto the baby Bjorn in front of her and it was Passion of the Christ weekend and it was crazy balls to the walls. Everybody was there. My parents were there. I mean, everybody was serving popcorn because we just had crowds like crazy. And it was, it was learn, you know, learn from the ground up. We knew the financial aspect of everything, but we didn't really, you know, we didn't really operationally know how to run a theater. And then certainly when we did movie tavern, we certainly didn't have a background in food service. So we had to hire people and cultivate the knowledge and, and, figure it out on the fly because nobody'd really done that in a, in a theater setting. I mean, to a small degree, there were the, the Bruin views, the second run, you know, locations, but nobody much was doing first run. And, you know, it was in its infancy back then. Yeah. I'm, I'm just glad we were young and energetic. We were young we were energetic we and successful. just stupid enough to be like, Hey, why not? So let's <laughs> go back to 2009. You guys have sold your, your interest in movie tavern you can do anything you want. You've got a little bit of money in the bank there to, to yep. have some flexibility. He was, ret- we were retired for a week. It, it took a week. That's, that's all it took. And it, was, it was, it was sad. I said, he doesn't remember this time. I was like, you were checking your laptop because you're used to all this activity and all these things that need to be dealt with. And the activity, all of a sudden, all of a sudden there right. were so many emails coming in. And and Jamie, what was, your, what was your reaction to the decision of like, hey, we just built a company and sold it. Let's build another one, but let's throw a bowling alley in there. Let's throw a yeah. laser tag in there. <laughs> How did you react to the second stage of your lives as exhibitors? Well, it didn't start out with, with bowling. It was going to be your traditional theater. We were going to go back to our roots, back to traditional bowling. We just had extra square footage in this building that we had. Foot the first synergy there. was actually, it, it was a shell building that had been bought, that had been built six years earlier and never finished out. And so when we laid in the movie theater component, it left a couple of big rooms off to the side of the lobby. And so we had to figure out what to do with them. And so I went to IAPA in, in the fall of 2008 and came back and said, we're going to do a game room and we're going to do laser tag. And that's really when I started hitting up my new friend, Neil Huffauer from main event and said, I've decided I'm going to do this. Can you help me operationally figure out what I'm doing? Because we had originally and, and it, thought that we would just lease that out, but this was 2008. Again, oh, we're in a recession. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah bad, t- bad timing with the recession. So we decided we needed to do something with that extra space ourselves. And I don't want to short sell the theater side of, of the equation within the synergy concept because the movies, like I said, it's actually pretty complimentary. You know, when there's not a big movie, a lot of people are going to go bowling and they're going to go do the other stuff that we offer. Like I said, escape rooms, axe throwing, whatever it may be. But on the big movie weekends, it's still all about Top Gun or Lightyear. Or, and, and we see that, you know, our attendance may, and we probably don't make as much money, on, on, honestly, on the weekends where, where it's a big movie because we got to sh- split so much with the studios because they're driving all those bodies. But it's, it's an important mix. I mean, we always kind of say the movies are the, are the magic of, of our, you know, that, that's sort of the secret sauce. I mean, we don't really want to be just an FEC, you know, that's just a bowling anchor at FEC like main event because it's the same thing week in and week out. And there's no, there's no urgency to go. No call to action. No call to action. It's got the same bowling, the same VR games. It's all cool stuff, but there's nothing new. But when Top Gun or Black Phone or whatever the movie du jour is that shows up, you know, it's only going to be there for a short number of weeks. And so there is a call to action to get to the theater to go see it. And that's where the synergy then comes in, because a lot of people come in. They may just want to watch the movie, but they can't escape the game room. Or they decide that, oh, let's stay and have a few drinks and, you know, have a few drinks. And they're like, oh, we still got another hour. Let's go bowling. There is something magical about the combination of everything. But the movie does drive a lot of the, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of the people into the building and they get exposed to everything that we offer. It's a well-rounded night out when, when you go to Synergy. There are so many options that you can pick from. But those options also have to evolve. I think one of the biggest lessons I've taken in this industry, you can point it out right away. Some movie theaters that I really love. I walk into that lobby, I look at a corner, I look at that arcade or games redemption center, and there's dust on the machines. It's the same. Right. It's the same thing. It doesn't look, it looks like a time capsule from 1994. How yep. do you keep things fresh? Because keeping things fresh on the screen is easy. We've got new movies coming in every weekend. Doing that in your entertainment spaces, that's a whole other challenge. It's a whole other challenge and it's expensive because you've got to change the games out quite frequently. You know, there's always a number one game in the game room and there's always another number hundred game in the game room if you have a hundred games. So there's there's one that earns really great and there's a a dozen that don't earn hardly anything. And so every year we're going to swap out the bottom 10 or 15% of the games. We're going to go to IAPA, we're going to see what's hot and new. And we're going to go drop twelve dollars to $15,000 on average per game to change out those bottom 10 or 15 games. So you'll have several hundred thousand dollars, you know, in game room expense. We added axe throwing. Let's see. It was supposed to open basically that the week we got shut down for the pandemic back in 2020. It has not been a great hit because we opened it during COVID and people didn't want to touch axes and they didn't want to be social. It's finally actually beginning to catch on now. But we actually pulled some of the lanes out and made room for some big VR pieces. And honestly, I think VR is going to be the next big thing. And I know Facebook is now called Meta and they're all into the the, the metaverse. But I think virtual reality, some of the games are awesome. I mean, these free roam VR games are so much fun. I talked to somebody this morning Not down in Copper's. Down at Copper's Cove, the guy who called me while we were in Norway, Jamie, he told me he took his grandkids over to Copper's Cove and played our Vex adventure. Uh, they spent $200. They played all afternoon. I mean, the virtual reality, it is immersive. I mean, it is immersive beyond what a PLF screen is immersive. Now, I do wonder, since I'm talking and doing an interview with a movie guy, somewhere down the road, movie theaters are going to struggle with when movies come out on VR headsets, it's going to be 
really immersive. And we're going to have to fight with that along with streaming. And I don't know how that battle is going to go. And I don't know when that occurs, whether that's five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road. But at some point, everyone's going to have their their Google glasses on. They probably will allow you. Who knows what the technology is going to be? But there's going to be, we're going to be wearing computers on our faces at some point all the time. And I think people are going to get real comfortable wearing VR goggles and the studios are going to seize upon that. And I think they're going to release movies in VR at some point, but that's, Mm -hmm. it's down the road. I guess maybe that's the visionary part of of, of the award is we're trying to think 10, 20 years out and and what can we do? How do we stay ahead of the technology curve? You know, we're putting in what we call a VR universe in our, in our latest prototype synergy, which is about a four to 5,000 square foot area in the back of the game room. That is all of these different VR pieces, free roaming, driving simulators, whatever the latest and greatest VR pieces are. And we're going to sell like an hour of time back there. And and we're going to try and turn virtual reality into a a mini attraction like or or an attraction like bowling, where you're going to go spend an hour bowling. I want to sell you an hour of time and you can go back there to the back of the VR universe. And it's specially themed out big LED walls and signage and all sorts of cool looking decor. And we want to see if we can turn VR into a, into an attraction that's going to get people to want to come, you know, and, and those pieces are not cheap and they're not going to be cheap for the people to, to go do. Cause if you could do like a VR, a, you know, a fully roaming VR experience, you can pay 40 or $50 for a 30 minute experience. So they're not cheap to us. Sort of the premiumization of synergy is our, our next step is to try and figure out what our VR universe is, what the pieces are going to be, how we're going to sell it and market it. The first one that that's really going to come out in is our Greenville, South Carolina project, which is probably about a like 16 to 18 months away from opening. But that's a, that's sort of our next generation prototype. I mean, everything we do, we look at it through the lens of an exhibitor, although we try and be more well-rounded and realize that we've got all these different other aspects. And I guess that's part of the reason we brought in so many other people into the organization to help cover up for the fact that I'm always thinking movie theater first, you know, and everybody else is like, no, 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 it's food service, it's bowling, it's it's games, we it's the whole. And I'm like, ah, but you know, the movie theater... Because it's, you know, it's, it is definitely part of our blood. I'm, I'm named for Jeffrey Hunter and Paul Newman, my first and middle name. And so my mother loved movies growing up. I mean, I, hell, I went to Star Wars 10 or 12 times back in the day in Indiana Jones. I, I've always loved the movies. And so I guess that's our first love. Still at the heart. Still at the heart. And that does it for this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast. Thank you to our co-hosts, Rebecca Pauly, Chad Kennerk, and Jesse Rifkin for their help and insights in this week's episode. And thank you again to our guests, Jeff and Jamie Benson from Synergy Entertainment. The Box Office Podcast comes out with new episodes every Thursday. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to us. This show is produced by The Box Office Company in collaboration with Box Office Pro and Record Edit Podcast. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Thanks again.